Hello, and welcome to episode number 137 of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a British conductor who started out, like so many others, as a chorister. He went on to start his own orchestra in 2005 and now has a flourishing guest conducting career. He's also very well known as being the current Head of Conducting at the Royal College of Music in London. It's a great pleasure to welcome Toby Purser. Toby, it's been a little while since we chatted, um, but it's lovely to see you again today. How are you? Mike, it's great to see you as well. Um, thanks for inviting me on. I'm very well, enjoying finally the arrival of summer in England. It's, yeah, as uh, we were saying before um, I press record, you know, it's one of the, it feels like when I started this podcast, the first lockdown, red hot, can't have any fans on, can't have any windows open. Um, yeah, it, it's a nice day today. Really nice day. Um, I always go back, as because I know you've listened to a few, you've dipped in and out, which is, you know, thank you for doing so, of, of previous episodes. You know I go right back to the beginning. And as far back as I can go is that you were educated at Winchester College and you were a chorister there. But I don't know whether you come from a musical family and whether choristing was the first thing you did <laughs> instrument wise you know I don't know your instruments well music how did it appear in your life how did it start well I I was born near Winchester and my family was not musical right and I my mother had played piano a bit when she was at school and my grandfather my father's sorry my mother's father mm. had uh, also played piano at a sort of amateur level but there were no musicians in the family and I sort of got hooked by music quite early on, just by accident. And mm. I have a couple of moments that I remember in my youth, which at the, at the time meant nothing, but looking back on them, I realized like that was it. That was when the, the seed was planted. And one was my parents had a, a tape of Giolini conducting Vorjak's New World Symphony. Mm. And I remember coming in once, I was leaping around the room listening to the scherzo, <laughs> and and my mother came and she said, oh, you're conducting. And and I was very much, of course I'm not, don't be ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was embarrassed like all five-year-olds would be being mm. discovered, sort of being far too effusive in front of their parents. But um, that was one moment. And the other one was when I was at kindergarten and this lady used to come in every week to play piano and for us to sing. And mm. I used to just pull up a chair and sit next to her, peering at her fingers and, and galvanized by what she was doing. And and I'd go home in the evening and t tell my parents, oh, I had a lovely day. Uh, I've learned this new song. And then when it came to the parents' evening at the end of the end of the term, the teacher said to my parents, well, we don't think Toby's very musical because he's not remotely interested in music. He doesn't join in in any of the songs. So my, <laughs> my parents said, oh, but he comes home every week and tells us exactly what song he's learned that day. So they quickly realised that I was really, really interested in the process of music making. And I was yeah. really captured by this, the piano and piano became my instrument um, to my well I don't say disappointment but in a sense it a little, it's a little disappointing in the long run that I started playing the piano too late right. so but that lady who came in to play at kindergarten became my first piano teacher but she wouldn't accept any students until they were eight mm. and looking back on it I think that was a bit too late for me to start and I always struggled with with my technique and I had all, you know, I, I went and studied, this is jumping ahead now, but when I was 18, I went and studied for a year in Vienna, studied piano mm. uh, as a gap year. And my teacher basically said, you have no musical problems. It's just technique. Yeah. <laughs> all, always my problems were, were technique. And when I was at school, 
playing in concerts, playing pieces which were way too hard than what I should have been playing. But you know how it is when, you, when you're that age, you have no idea what difficult is. You just think everything's possible. Yeah. Um, so I was playing stuff, which my fingers just couldn't keep up with my brain, basically, or my intentions. So um, I always knew I wanted to be a musician. And I think at the beginning, it was very instinctive. And it was just like, I really connected to it, whether it was also, you know, trying to conduct with my mother's spaghetti and making a total mess in the kitchen, or <laughs> as or, or that those moments when, uh, you know, they walked in on me jumping around the room to Vorjak 9. Mm. Um, so my parents were amazing, because they were not, uh, I lost my parents six years ago. And looking back on on them now, I appreciate so much more than I did at the time, the fact that without them being musicians, they supported kind of unquestioningly whatever I wanted to do in music. And if it, if it was my music teacher saying, Toby needs to go and study in, with Ilya Musin in St. Petersburg, as I did, or with George Hurst, all these things, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later, mm. they always said, okay, if that's what's best for you, we'll, we'll make it possible. And they were so generous and so supportive. And of course, I didn't appreciate it enough at the time. And <laughs> um, I'm very grateful to have had parents like that. Um, and as you mentioned in my, in my intro, yes, I became a chorister. So um, I went to boarding school, probably, again, too young yeah. uh, at the age of eight, uh, which is very young to be away from your family. Uh, but actually, I had a great time because I spent most of my time making music. And yeah. the the lifeline for me was being a chorister. So every morning I was in 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 the music room singing. Mm. And there's it's just such an amazing preparation for your your musical awareness of all those things you need as a conductor, you know, listening to one another, um, thinking ahead, thinking about phrasing, um, so many other things about, you know, this microcosm of society or uh, that an orchestra is, but also a choir is, mm. and um, responsibility. You know your responsibility to to blend with the people around you, when to project, when it's your moment to come forward, when it's your moment to accompany. And again, I didn't intellectualize any of this at the time, but it just became to my day to day, in, in my blood, basically day to day. And alongside being a chorister, I also had access to really good music teachers. So. Um, it meant that I had my music lessons at Winchester College mm. and I had an amazing piano teacher there called Robert Batoni. And uh, he's one of those people, you know, you have certain people in your life who you form really life-changing relationships with. And, and, and he was kind of my first mentor yeah. because the relationship you have with somebody who teaches you music goes so far beyond something which you put into words because at every single moment in that one-to-one -one lesson you are you're putting your heart on the table you are That's right yeah you yeah. are you are you're opening yourself up to criticism you're opening up to all your baggage all the things you don't know how to how to express all the all the parts of your psychology of your personality which maybe you haven't come to terms with yet but somehow it all has to be at the service of the music and what's the composer trying to say here and how can you bring yourself to making that that real or making that making that honest. I mean that that's very important in your teenage years, especially when we are searching for who we are and what we are and how we're going to conform or not conform or fit into the world. And you're, you know, during those surly years or you know where you're, you you don't want to open your heart up. You know, you you go from being grumpy to back to being a nine year old again. To, you're right. You have those relationships with your music teachers where you have to open yourself up both, you know, intellectually, 
and through your heart and your soul and because otherwise music won't happen it doesn't happen exactly and i think it's a big leap of faith to to actually well actually not a leap of faith but it's a leap of courage hmm. to allow yourself to express what you think and i'm sure in different cultures and different periods it's a different challenge so um without naming countries you know there are, there are some cultures where it's really not considered good to express too much of what you think mm. and you really need to kind of remain under the radar um but and to be honest when i was at school there were a lot of things so anybody who was was gay might be bisexual or something that was not spoken about mm. and and to be honest people who did put their heads a, above the parapet were teased pretty mercilessly it was yes. you know so so I, people have a, had come out come out of that with a quite damaged mm. unless they had people around them who loved them and made them able to sort of get through that that difficulty and 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 find themselves and have the courage to be the person they were born to be mm. and that's again where i think mentorship the right mentors is is so very important i i was in a school earlier this week uh, and it was just such a wonderful reminder of how things have changed because i was in the in the dining room and they had it's pride week at the moment in in the uk and mm. and there were all these pride flags all over the the canteen and i thought how fantastic god mm. you know it's just and it's so those things are not a problem now no but, i mean less so of course there's still always some stigma involved but um but it's just now different things are the challenge mm. you know, now now we realize there are different parts of society which need to be improved and people need to be made aware of and and again as conductors that's such an important thing for us to bring bring ourselves to because we're not just performing seals you know um <laughs> no, no, no no pun intended no, I, I know but well done for being the first person in 134 episodes or whatever it is to use it <laughs> uh, but it, it is that thing about being aware of the culture we're in how do we how do we make the music of the 19th century or the 18th century relevant to a 21st century audience mm. and society and this is this is always a really exciting thing to be bringing our our imagination and our, our experience to it's very true. I'm going to linger briefly on because as you were talking about being a chorister, I just thought thought back and thought over the many, many, many episodes, so many people have come through the British chorister system that I could, off the top of my head, Ed Gardner, Mark Elder, Trevor Pinnock. I interviewed Chris Warren Green yesterday. He was a chorister as well. And there were many, many, many others going back through the, the list. And uh, what a training it, it, it must be to have that it's rigorousness of every morning in with the choir, learning new repertoire. Um, but you know, it's almost like speed learning as well. That you know, you 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 get miles ahead musically. Just as you were talking about phrasing, about learning quickly, than you do with us, just mere instrumentalists like myself. You know, I didn't start playing the violin until I was nine. Um, yeah, what a what a great training, and you know, and and it's still there today, which is. Which is, you know, the good thing. Whereas all other areas and avenues of music education in the UK have dwindled, all of them, uh, other than the, that chorister system. That's right. And I think, I mean, one of the things which British musicians are so famous for, of course, is our, our ability to sight read. Mm. And and I'm sure the choral tradition has a big part to do with that because you are having to sight read new music every single day. Yes. And be and be able to sing it perfectly. Mm. Uh, it means you have have to have excellent rhythm. You have to be able to read quickly. You have to have good pitch. Um, and actually, you also need to be able to, to follow a conductor. Yes. 
And so maybe, you know, the fact that I was standing in front of a conductor from the age of eight and learning how to follow what these movements meant mm. uh, has an impact on on my bringing it into my own physical language as well as a sort of just a natural part of everyday life. Mm. You said you had a gap year, which I didn't know about, before then going on to Oxford to read music. Did, had you, did you just defer the place for a year to go and study the piano in Vienna or... or... Uh, how did it work? Yes, I did. Well, there are a number of factors. One is that I was quite young for my year. So I was born at the end of June. So mm. I was quite a young person in the year. Um, but also I'd started conducting uh, by a wonderful accident, which I have to tell you very, very quickly. No, please do. Because uh, was... that was going to be my next question was, you know, when did the bug uh, take hold? Well, so uh, I mentioned my parents before. So my, my grandfather... The one who also played a little bit of piano was a one was a fantastic gardener, mm. and uh, my parents inherited that love of gardening from from him, and so I wanted to garden as well. And uh, when I was uh, when I was at school, one of the most lovely men in the whole whole of the staff was the senior chaplain, and he used to run the guard the gardening. So I thought, oh right, I want to do gardening, and I get to spend <laughs> an afternoon a week with this amazing man. And uh, so I went to one session of gardening. It was a once a week activity, sort of like community service. Mm. And um, so I went along for one session and then I got told off by my piano teacher saying I was not to do gardening because it was bad for my wrists. <laughs> and so I, so I went to the head of the community services and said, I'm really sorry, but I've been told I've got to change to something else. What, what do you suggest? And he said, oh, well, a retired teacher has just moved into the area and wants somebody to go and visit once a week just for conversation. And there was mm. there was a hospice quite near to the school called St. Cross. And a number of the, the college boys used to we'd get on our bicycles and and go and visit these uh, retired gentlemen. It wouldn't be allowed now, I'm sure. Mm. But, but uh, just literally jumping on a bicycle, <laughs> cycling off to a stranger's house. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and I went in and uh, had a lovely, started having a nice chat, a cup of tea. And he suddenly says, what are you reading right now? I said, I'm reading a book by Sir Adrian Bolt called mm. The Point of the Stick. Yeah. And his eyes lit up and he said, Sir Adrian was my teacher. <gasps> and I said, and he said, I used to be a conductor. Oh, wow. And if you bring a baton next week, I'll start teaching you how to conduct. And that's how it started. And I was already interested in conducting. I was reading yeah. about it. My, my parents had actually bought me a baton one Christmas. <laughs> and uh, so it all had started. And... And so every Wednesday afternoon, I went and spent two precious hours with this lovely man called Donald Leggett. Mm. And after about a year of him giving me some basic training, he said, I think you need to go and study with George Hurst. Mm. And because I think I, he said, I've taught you as much as I, I think I'm able to. You need to go to somebody now who really knows whether you have the potential to be a conductor or not. Mm. So George Hurst has set up this summer conducting masterclass called the Canford Summer School in Music. Canford, yes, legendary. Canford. Yeah. Uh, so at the age of 17, I went along for my first Canford and it was a total revelation because up to that point, I still, I don't think I, it took me many years, many more years of Canford really to sort of, I think to begin to understand what the thing of conducting actually was. But I, but I started to realise how much more there was to it than just sort of thrashing mm. around and getting excited by the music. And uh, George was my most important mentor for the rest of his life and yeah. i quickly became he did realize i was a good pianist so i became his class pianist i then became his assistant later in, in life and um he gave me some 
I don't know how to put this. <laughs> George taught me so much. And I think my musical conscience was very much formed by him. Mm. He's also gave me a lot of thought about how I did or didn't want to teach conducting myself. Because right. I went I went through the, that process of teaching, which was also quite similar with Ilya Musin, who I went to later in St. Petersburg, which was very much that you you copy their way of doing it. Yes. And that's that's I mean, and there's a very strong logic behind that, is you know, until you can do something better yourself, why not copy somebody who can do it? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. the reality is that, that that can only take you so far. Um, because you are basically copying somebody else's body language. Mm. And the and I might be fast forwarding to something you probably want to talk about later because I am no, but it, it, I, I, we're bound to talk about it later, which is you know your head of conducting at the Royal College of Music, um, and it, it it will come up, but it's good that it comes up here because obviously one of my questions was going to be your style and your ethos as a teacher is, is it informed by who taught you, and so you know it's going to come up. So yeah, absolutely, it makes sense to talk about it now. Well, I I think it's very dangerous to emulate anybody else of course mm. but but that's the trouble with huge personalities it's almost impossible yeah. not to because you you see them doing something and think well it can't be better than that i'm so convinced that's the way i'm going to do it and you know whether it's a teacher or whether it's seeing carlos kleiber doing Fledermas overture or yeah. abado yeah. doing marla nine it's like that's the way to do it mm. and but the trouble is, as soon as you as soon as you copy, try to copy their body language, everyone smells it a mile off. Yeah. It's, it's not genuine. And so after I'd studied with George Hurst and later Ilya Musin, so I came back from St. Petersburg looking like a because I've been copying Musin, I looked like a 94 year old with arthritis. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so I went to Colin Metters at the Royal Academy. Uh, where he was head of conducting and I spent three years with him and Colin I think is just the best I, I think Colin is is an absolute wonder because he goes so far beneath your surface and he mm. manages to get you to throw away everything which is not genuine to yourself mm. but he also enabled me to identify what were the principles which unite George Hurston and Ilya Musin and actually, which I can then integrate into myself and make them my own. Mm. And now that was a very, very long, slow, painful process. Um, and these things are very psychological. And, and you know, like all things, we all develop at different speeds. And yeah. it's so important. And this is very central to my ethos of teaching conducting is, is you cannot force things. You have to let people develop at the right speed and the right time for themselves. Mm. And... But there are fundamentals there that we must all adhere to, you know, whether that's technically with the stick or without the stick or things you, you have to say or things, you know, times you have to butt in. All of these these things are, are fundamentals that make, you know, a conductor a conductor. Um, but as you say, copying, you know, I think it's part of the problem. Actually, I'm going to focus in on one particular sentence you said or half a sentence. It's the problem with the deflator mouse overture currently is that everybody rehearses it too much to try and sound like a Carlos Kleiber's version. They, <laughs> they just do. I mean, you know, when I was playing, I used to think, why are we rehearsing this so much? We've got the whole of the rest of the programme to do. And then I started getting into conducting and watched the famous video and then various performances in Japan later on you can see on YouTube. And you suddenly think, oh, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and yeah, you're so right. Copying, you know, somebody's, especially if you you're up close, like you were with George Hurst and with Moosin, it's very easy for things to rub off on you, if not worse. You know, you you actually think I must do it like that, you know, rather than it rubbing off. Well, it's it's also because when you go to study with somebody, you you believe in that person. You've yeah. chosen you've chosen to study with them because you believe in them. And there is something, you know, like being a disciple in that because yes. it's and also if you go to a masterclass, it's like you pop in, you know, and it's like it's like if you if you if, like, if I'm giving a masterclass, it's a very different thing from mentoring somebody over a couple of years. So if you're giving a masterclass, you just give them as much as you can as you can and they can take it or leave it. Mm. And your your main role is just to just to just to help as much as you can and, and hope that you can make a difference. Uh, the responsibility when you're looking after somebody over a long period of time is so different. Mm. Um, and you know my hope is that when I get to, somebody gets to the end of two years studying me at the Royal College that they don't look like me yes and thankfully they all look different and mm. and when I when I think of when I think of uh the students of Musin who've gone on to the biggest careers they all look totally different because they yes, found they their way so I mm. think of I know Beechkov, Temirkanov, Gergiev to make mention three German uh Russian ones and of the British ones I mean Martin Brabin, Sean Edwards, Stuart Stratford, Jerry Cornelius me we all mm. you know we all look we all look totally different yeah but there are principles which unite us and we found our way to make them our own mm. so i think you have to focus on that what is what are the principles what is what is it you can take from this in order to express your intentions in the most immediate natural way possible and that's where that's basically where the book finishes because after that it's different for every individual and yes. and so i think i think i think the more i I mentor conductors, the more I realize how emotionally draining it is because you need to be totally empathetic mm. about how that person is reacting to every word you say, whether it's going too deep, whether it's, whether it's, you know, cause you don't want to push a nerve too hard and, 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 and dam not damage somebody, but to, to inhibit them. Yes. It has yeah. to be a not way of their confidence. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So of course, constructive criticism is important, but and sometimes, you know, a, a harsh, a, a dose of tough love may mm. also be necessary. But, but I, you know, I, the English way of teaching it, it for sure is, I mean, we're always being told we're too nice. Um, I certainly, when I started doing masterclasses, a, a few friends said, Toby, you're too nice. Yeah, they, yeah. they actually want you to be tougher. And But that also applies to conducting. You know, I mean, when you're, I remember I was doing some concerts in Russia and I did the first couple of rehearsals and it really wasn't going very well. Mm. And uh, at one point, at one point, uh, somebody at the back desk of the first, I was doing a piece by Tippett. Right. You know, this is not really their normal repertoire. And at one point they weren't getting a, a rhythm right. And I sang the rhythm the way it was supposed to be. It was a cross rhythm. And somebody at the back of the seconds has said, no, that's not right. And suddenly <laughs> I just lost it. And I had a yeah. massive, it's not like me at all, but I had a massive tantrum in Russian. I was very proud of that. Oh, very good. Uh, yeah. And um, and I stormed out. Yeah. And I went and had a lovely lunch. <laughs> and I decided I was going to go back after lunch. And I got back and I heard they were all practicing like crazy. Yeah. And I walked in absolute silence. And after that was maestro this, maestro that. And I said to the leader, "What happened? Why? Yeah. Why, yeah. why did it take me having to have a tantrum for you to behave?" And she said, we just wanted to see whether we just needed you to assert yourself more. Oh, wow. And, and so, but there was a healthy dose of reality that different countries, different orchestras, you have to be you have to read the room 
Yes. So if I'd behaved like that with a British orchestra, I could have waved goodbye to. Oh God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that yeah, would have been. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have laughed in my face. Yeah. yeah. But but uh, with that orchestra at that moment, some thankfully I made the right choice, which was to go to go and have an early lunch. It's very, very, very true. Uh, I, mean, I remember one orchestra, uh, I got the feedback that I hadn't pushed them hard enough mm. um, it, for some, over some uh, one or two particular moments. And I, I just felt that that was also partly because there was an older generation in the room and a younger generation in the room. And, the, and it was actually the younger ones who wanted to be pushed and the older ones were quite happy with me doing my normal, you know, I trust you, you trust me, it'll all be mm. fine. Um, but yeah, it is very, very different from country to country. Uh, and orchestra to orchestra, how you, you know, sometimes you can be more forthright and direct with your what you say. Other times you do that and there's almost a, a gasp in the room because you've been too direct. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, and, it, and that, I mean, that's also part of the learning to be a conductor process is realising that you don't just go in and say the same thing every time in the same way. You have to learn that. You have to be able to read the room, smell the, smell the coffee, whatever it is. Uh, and, and it's different in every orchestra. I mean, the other thing I, I thought about the parallels, because I spent a long time, 10 years, teaching the violin at the conservatory in Birmingham. Um, I always used to teach my students uh, the fundamentals so that when they left and they, you know, let's say they they, met, they got in an orchestra, which I would have been so proud of, and a, a couple of my students have, I wasn't going to get rung up every five minutes saying, and this is wrong with my playing, this hurts, that hurts. They had to be able to teach themselves by the time they left me. Mm. having given them the fundamentals then you go away and teach yourself because you know as well as i do when we're on the road guesting or even in the middle of you know an opera run if something's not working you've got to figure out what to do with yourself to change it you, you can't just you know if i was your student if i kept bringing you up saying toby uh, why isn't this not working you'd get pretty pissed off eventually um uh, uh, and so yeah you have to be able to teach yourself and, and therefore the fundamentals uh, are so important but I like what you say about you know give them the fundamentals and but you, and it's also that it's tiring. It must be tiring. I know when I do it with my private pupils, but if you've got a class, you've got to get inside their head to work out what they're thinking about the music. Um, yeah, that yeah, it is tiring. But when you've got a class over two years, that's a very long, slow burn, isn't it? It is, and I'm very aware when I if I take my finger off the button. Yeah, yeah, but, but because I I mean so my my. I'm in a very privileged position at the Royal College because I'm one of three conducting professors. So the, mm. we have four postgraduate conducting students and they, between the four of them, they have three professors. Yeah. And on the one hand, as, as the three of us say to each other, say, what's the best thing about conducting at the Royal College of Music? You have three professors. What's the worst thing about conducting at the Royal College of Music? <laughs> you have three professors. You have three and professors, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you, you see, if you, if you want to have somebody to teach you their way of doing it, that's not the place to come. No. Uh, but, you know, you need students who are already able to digest different opinions mm. and, uh, and choose what they want and choose what works for them. Um, but the great thing is, I, I mean, my, my colleagues are Peter Stark and Howard Williams, and I think our, our approaches are very complementary. Mm. Um, and we've all actually been taught at some point by or, or in contact with George Hurst. Um, I'm the only Muslim student. Right. Uh, so that's an interesting discussion. 
Uh, but Martin Brabens is also our, our, he's called our Prince Consort Visiting Professor, which mm. means that he comes each term and works with the students and does concerts. And so he's a obviously a pupil of Musin, and that's that's nice for me. So I feel, yes. feel very at home yeah. with that. And uh, you, you mentioned about how tiring it is being empathetic all the time. But in a sense, because I have these colleagues, it, it takes a lot of weight off me. And it's a very privileged position because... I actually don't have to be there all of the time. I only my contract is actually two days a week, and yeah. I can do that wherever I am in the world. Yeah. So I don't always have to be in college for those two days a week. Uh, so long as I'm in communication and making sure I'm keeping an eye on things, mm. um, so that enables me to carry on doing my other work. Because my my sort of red line that I would never cross is that my my performing career comes first. Yes, and. That's important for me as a teacher as well, because I don't want a student of mine to think, oh, he's well, he's just so this is an awful thing that just a teacher because it's oh, yeah. the most wonderful thing and so important. But it's a, I think the fact that I'm a performing musician is really important for them yeah, because it gives them an insight into the reality of of the life of a conductor, the difficulties that, that and I share with them totally openly mm. the mistakes I've made the difficulties I have, things which are going well. I ask them to come and be my assistant uh, to attend rehearsals um, because I think that's that's a what I feel about my training was that it was very focused on the act of conducting, mm. but it didn't really talk about how to rehearse, yeah. uh, psychology, uh, the business, yes, you know, finding an agent how to how to network uh, and social media didn't really exist when i was a student but but now obviously it's a very very important thing for people to be aware of that absolutely but the, the industry yeah and that's something which was never addressed when i was a student it was all about you know it was very pure it was about it was, it was very spiritual actually and it was just all about you know what is this wonderful mystic thing almost of conducting but there are there are so many other things. I mean, I do almost identical to that on my Patreon page. And dear listener, this is not a plug for my Patreon page. But <laughs> what I, I what I do, and I have six young conductors who are on the top top level, and they get so many hours a year conducting with me. And the phone is always on for them. If they've got a question, they can ring me or whatever else. But I also write tour diaries about what happens when you go away. Who books your flights? Who pays for your hotel? Who picks you up at the airport? And then I talk honestly and candidly, and I write it all down about every rehearsal I do, what worked, what didn't work. And so they can read this, and then they're welcome to send, find me a message on WhatsApp or write a comment underneath the article on Patreon so that the other Patreon subscribers can get involved. And it's proved to be very popular, but also quite eye-opening for some people that, you know, oh, I didn't realise that was that how it worked. As you said... You know, when you go to uh, a conservatoire at any level and learn conducting, of course you learn all the technical stuff, but it's all of the add-ons, the peripheries, the other stuff um, that is actually helps you do your job properly when you stand on that podium with the score open in front of you. You know, um, it's they're very important things. Exactly. And, I mean, Mike, what a wonderful thing you're doing with your Patreon page. I I, I just think that's wonderful because it's, it's really hard because... You don't want to stand in front of your first, uh, in front of a professional orchestra for the first time and get egg on your face oh. if you can possibly avoid it. And yeah. you know, the first time I stood in front of, of a professional orchestra, I remember thinking I was swimming. I just mm -hmm. didn't understand where anything was. And if you don't warm 
a young conductor what what it's going to feel like yeah and 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 just think that these are these are the things you need to look for i mean i'm i'm the last one to talk i i still get it wrong nine <laughs> times out of ten i'm sure but um i mean funnily enough the rehearsals i the concerts i like most when i've only got one rehearsal Yes, yes, because yes. because it, then you just have to be able to show it mm. and there's not much time to talk and you just yeah. have to be really, really on it and really uh, focused and, and, and helpful. Yeah, uh, it's when you have time that you can lose the orchestra. And that's the mm. moment when you when you have to be so aware, such a good colleague. And you know, that colleague actually is probably the most important word because, yeah. you know, the, the thing we all know, there are lots of conductors with next to no technique in in in, in uh you know in, the, in yeah. a sort of traditional sense yes but the music just oozes out of them so that you do, you just know exactly what they want and the results are, are simply mind-blowing yeah i mean i think of harnacore yes you know, exactly I mean, yeah yeah i mean you're one of my absolute favorite conductors and but you would never teach his technique to anybody uh, or, no. or even advocate it to a to a degree um you just exactly wouldn't. exactly that so so the thing about i know i'm mean, it's probably even more more of a case of singers but i think it is the case for conductors too that you know the the, the person who's invited back is the one who's the best colleague mm. and people really ultimately don't care you know what's his technique and uh, a nine out of a ten or a ten out of ten uh it's actually was the music making really inspiring did he did they make us feel engaged did they did they make us feel that we played better than we were capable of without that person mm. and that that's where it's all about psychology and uh, and to use the same expression again reading the room yeah uh you're the first person to have ever broken down the word chemistry that i've used so often on this on this podcast about the chemistry between an orchestra and a conductor and vice versa and and actually to break go down just peel off one layer of that onion and and say no it's about being a colleague and um, I mean, that's why sometimes that chemistry isn't there. That that collegiality is not there because they don't get you, you don't get them, one or other or both. Um, and it, you know, that's why. Thank God there are hundreds of orchestras out there for us all to try uh, to that's find right. our, our group of friends. Um, Absolutely, but, but also yeah. also bear in mind that I think as conductors we can be quite defensive. Yes, so, of course. You know, you're there all. You're on your island, all on your own, mm. and. Uh, and if somebody criticizes you or you feel something negative coming towards you, the wall goes up mm. and, you know, a great conductor is able to think, OK, I've got a problem there. I'm going to deal with it. Yeah. And and they'll actually find a way to embrace that person into, with, in a warm way and, and make that wall evaporate yeah. rather than just put a wall up in front of yourself and, and just be very stern and by definition, not a colleague anymore. And, um, and going back to your teaching. That's why keeping a performing career is important. And I've, uh, and again, I'm going to mention Patreon. The latest series I started was, was one called What Would You Do in This Situation? And it was inspired by an American conductor subscriber who sent me a What Would You Do? Uh, late one night on on uh, Facebook Messenger, uh, Chris Russell sent me this, this scenario that he'd happened to him. And I thought, hey, this is a good idea because we've all had those where you've had a, a player be aggressive towards you or you've had a player ask you a question where you know you whatever you get, answer you give is going to give them fuel to a fire they might have across the other side of the orchestra. There, there is some leading question that's going to get you in the shit, frankly. Um, and, and I think it's so important that by having that performing career, you can come back to your students when you're back in the UK and see them face to face and put that in front of them and say, this happened to me last week. What would you do? 
you know, don't tell them the answer. What would you do? And then exactly. ma make them think about it. Yeah, and well, they might, without they might that performing career, it doesn't happen, you know. And they might have a better solution than the one I took. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly actually, that. Yeah. But actually, I think is thing I one of the things I love about teaching is is I'm you know, I'm always I'm we're all, we never stop learning. And that's yeah. that's always going to be the case for all of us. Anyone who's an artist, you never yeah. stop learning, you never feel you've achieved your your potential. And uh you also I'm also learning a lot about teaching. Mm. And you know, I only started the job at the Royal College three years ago. So and that was at the beginning of of covid so for for, for 18 months it was a very different experience than the the last yeah. 18 months yeah. and uh, bit by bit you find your way and and develop alongside one another and i think you know the the interaction with your with your your mentorees is yeah. is a really well if it if it weren't if it weren't so rewarding we wouldn't do it no exactly no We talked about performing careers and we, we sort of leapt to the end of my questioning but well, and jumped over the fact that, you know, eventually having read music at Oxford and then uh, uh, went to the Royal Academy and, and had Colin Metters make you find yourself rather than find your mini Georges or your mini Ilias. <laughs> um, you're basically involved with the foundation of, well, two orchestras. Wikipedia lists the Oxford Philomusica as one that you, you helped set up but then the big one is 05, where you founded the Orion Orchestra, which you still have a relationship with. In 2019, you, I imagine you dropped down to being principal guest from being founder and music director. Why That's start true. an orchestra? I've asked this of everybody who's ever done it. I mean, the cynic would say, you know, I need to conduct an orchestra. It's better if I've got my own, then I know I'm going to guarantee to conduct it. But then there may well be other reasons for that. No, um, it was basically that. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the the... The honest truth is that I'd been now. This is me slightly patting myself on the back, but in a it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, uh, double-edged compliment. I mean, uh, it's um, so I'd always been George Hurst's golden boy, and when I was with Ilya Moussin, he was like, "Oh, Toby has everything." You know, he's mm. so I thought, okay, this is this is all going really well. Yeah, um, went to the academy, had you know, became myself, and I thought, I just thought, okay, so what happens next? And I just thought the, that it was just going to carry on like that, all just mm. being presented on a silver tray um that toby is is the one you want and so the phone didn't ring mm. and i was i was conducting some amateur orchestras some student orchestras just things here and about but things weren't developing i looking back on it realized that i wasn't ready mm. at all um but that's maybe something we can talk about later but mm. but after 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 a few years um, I was asked if I would be artistic director of a charity event called A Night Under the Stars, which is uh, was an annual event for the homeless for a charity called The Passage in London. And so for a couple of years, I was artistic director of it and there wasn't an orchestra, but it was there were smaller venues and we had some amazing singers and artists. And then we had a booking at the Royal Festival Hall. And I said, look, this is a really big venue. We really need an orchestra this time. Yes. And um, they said, fine, we'll put together an orchestra. So I put together an orchestra and I thought, well, I need a suitably stellar name for it. <laughs> so I called it Orion for A Night yeah. Under the Stars. And so we did that one concert together. 
I thought, oh, it was such an amazing orchestra. What a shame it can't continue and we could do more concerts together. So uh, six months later, I decided to do another concert uh, and another charity concert. It, there had, uh, it was to help with human humanitarian aid in Lebanon. Mm. And then the following year, there was another Night Under the Stars concert. And once I've done those three concerts and I had started inviting enough of my contacts who I thought might help sponsor some mm. first concerts of our own. And so bit by bit, uh, I managed to build up some supporters and some backing and and put together my own orchestra. But the the honest reality is, yes, I said it became a charity and it became and the intention was very much and is still very much to provide a stepping stone orchestral opportunity for students who are just leaving music college and as they, you know, bridging the gap yes. between music college and, and their musical professional careers. Mm. Um, but it it was also serving a really important service for myself, which was I needed a springboard. I needed yeah. I needed a, a window where I could be seen, basically. Absolutely, yeah, and we all do. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was that was quite simply a, a career move. Mm. And um, I mean, so many conductors have done that, of course. I mean, think yeah, of Richard Hickox, yeah. you know, yes. and uh, and I learned so much from doing it. Um, a, one of the things I never got taught properly when I was at music college was how to rehearse. Yeah. So having having an orchestra to rehearse regularly helped a lot. I was also a principal conductor of another orchestra in North London called the London International Orchestra. And that was a weekly rehearsal as well. And I, I had lots of professional musicians in it or, or retired professionals in it. So yes. I got all these people who had been principal principal bass of the of Covent Garden and and principal clarinet of Covent Garden and a viola from the RPO. And so there were lots of really wonderful people in it who actually gave me really helpful feedback, but yeah. also came just because they wanted to play for enjoyment. Mm. So it was it was interesting. There were lots of professionals who, who had stopped playing professionally, but wanted just to come and play for fun. And so that that also is something I'm so grateful for because I managed to get through such a lot of core rep. And so when I'm doing these, you know, one rehearsal kind of gigs, the fact that I had that training of doing all these big gala programs and all all the rep you get on these typical sort of um, very popular classical music programs, uh, I, I had a chance to try out lots of times with this other or orchestra because that's the other difficulty is what happens to a young conductor if they've never conducted conducted a I don't know Brahms Symphony Number no. Two, yeah. and suddenly they get an invitation from a really top-notch orchestra to go and do it with them i mean mm -hmm. that that's that's not a good place to try out brahms 2 for the first time <laughs> definitely not i mean yeah, the second movement actually came as somebody's answer to the hardest piece they've ever conducted recently and i i, I nodded away in very much an agreement that it is bloody hard and i'm i'm very glad that um you know i, I tried it out on a on a couple of amateur orchestras first before having done it you're absolutely right um it's 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 so important that you you mm. also going back to those ex pros those ex pros are the who then want to carry on playing for their own enjoyment's sake they're they're quite rare but therefore you know that they're the sort of people who will give you honest feedback because they still enjoy playing and they enjoy the process and they enjoy orchestras therefore by sheer dint of those facts that they're, they're not conductor haters they're likely to come to you and give you honest advice and and that's it's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, You're very really right. Is. You're yeah. very right. Yeah. You know, very, very happy. Even during my 22 years in the 
CBSO, I, I could tell you that the players who were conductor haters, didn't matter who stood up there, uh, even down to Rattle and Oromo and the people that we had as boss, whereas the others who were genuinely interested. So when I started conducting them, you know, in 05, and I, I did, you know, nine years, both as a violinist and a conductor, I knew the people whose advice I could I could listen to because I knew that they were interested in the process and the music making and they weren't just uh, a hater of everybody who held a baton in their left or right or right hand. Um, yeah, it's it's important that you get all of that through through whatever process. Well, it's also so interesting, isn't it? The the way as a conductor you take and welcome advice from an orchestra member, but, but then how to interpret it? Yes, because. And there's that wonderful book by Mark Wigglesworth, uh, mm. the, silent, the silent musician. And he he got um, one of the orchestras he was conducting to write down a list of adjectives of, of the qualities that they thought a conductor needed to possess. Yeah. And there's about a page or two pages of them. And they're, they're uh, so contradictory. And it's you just basically have to be all things to all men or, yes. and women at all times. Dear, dear listener, go back to the Mark Wigglesworth episode because at some point I read out the entire list that he quoted. Um, I, I broke the episode up and I wrote out, I read out every single word, and it's fascinating. It really is fascinating because they're so contradictory. Um, and it's also it's also one of the best books about conducting. Yes, I've read because it's not about how to conduct; it's about why we conduct. Yes, and what actually why there is a conductor, mm. and that's 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 something I think is not thought about enough by conducting students because they're obviously they're very focused on the on the grammar. Yes. Of conducting, but uh, the 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 philosophical side of it is is so important. Now, why did now why I got distracted? Oh yes, the way the way to um, interpret information from an orchestra yes. uh, member, and so very often, I mean, I'm sure every conductor listening to this will will identify when they've been told they're trying to be musical, and somebody says, "Excuse me, can you just give us a, give us a, give us a clearer first beat?" <laughs> give us that, <laughs> and and it's so hard not to snap and say I'm trying my best. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but the reality is, that, well, we're clearly not providing something they do need. Yeah, and yeah. so I I think the reality is that uh, so much of the information which we communicate to conductors is not consciously analysed by an orchestra player. Uh, and that's partly also the way that information goes in faster from um, what's it called side vision or peripheral vision. Yes. Than if you look straight at somebody, if you look straight at somebody, you have to analyze what they're doing. The brain analyzes. It takes you know, a nanosecond longer. Mm. And uh, so peripheral vision actually goes much, much deeper into the emotions than something which you have to analyze. So I think a lot of the information we're communicating is not actually uh, consciously noticed by members no. of the orchestra. Oh, absolutely, um, I agree with that. Yeah, totally. Uh, but, but it means that when somebody's not getting a rhythmic clarity they want from you at a certain moment, they say, "Oh, I need a clearer first beat there." And mm. uh, um, so eventually, I've I've managed to find that if somebody now says to me, "Can you be a bit clearer there?" I I I'm no longer I don't get uppity like I used to and think, "Well, I'm you know go you try and I wouldn't ever say that you try and do it." Yeah. Uh, because you're trying to do something very you're trying to be musical you're trying to do what you think is the most important thing at that moment. Um, but I think it's a it's a case of providing a musical clarity. Mm. Um, well, it's two things. If you're totally clear musically, there will never be an issue about what your intention is and what the. But also, it's also about turning, turning the table and thinking if I was sitting in the in the position of that percussionist yes 
what do they need from me at that moment? You know, what is it they need from me? It's not about what is the is the, what's the sunrise or what's 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 the uh, the atmosphere? How much swell is there in the sea at this moment? Yeah. It's also actually I need to play a really difficult cross rhythm. Uh, what what does that musician need from me at this moment? So that and this and this comes into you know how we study our scores also. It's that yes, it does that, very much so that that um, identification with what the orchestra needs from us at each particular moment. Because as conductors, yes, we're leaders. Uh, but it's a very particular kind of leadership, and it, 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 I think it has to be servant leadership on the level of serving the composer first of all, yes. and secondly serving the orchestra, and never serving ourselves. Mm. And and but you can always you can you can always spot there are some uh, quite impressive looking conductors out there on YouTube who are clearly serving themselves. Oh, absolutely, it. yes, exactly. I mean, I I always say to my students that. Everything that you do with your hands and arms and your face and your gestures goes forwards into the orchestra 100% of the time. However, occasionally you might do a gesture which helps somebody in the percussion or helps somebody in the brass or helps somebody on the peripherals of the of the orchestra, which as a byproduct goes backwards into the audience. So the audience, because there are people in the audience who sit and watch the conductor and nothing else. I said, no, but you should never, ever think backwards first. It's always for forwards. But, you know, if, if you happen to do a gesture in that particular way, then an audience member might go, oh, that's thrilling and exciting. You know, but everything goes forwards, 100%. Never, ever, ever, you know, think about serving yourself or that's going to look pretty to the people who pay the money behind me. You know, that exactly. occasionally there's a byproduct that it does, but never search for that. You know, that's the whole point. Can I briefly go to opera? Because your CV is littered with opera companies. Uh, you're music director of the New Sussex Opera. And between 2016 and 2018, you're the Ian O. McCarris Conducting Fellow. Was opera something you always wanted to do um, since, you know, the, uh, founding the Orion or, all those years ago in 05? Or, or is it just something that sort of slowly, gently morphed into something that you do quite a lot of? It actually, it, it was a bit of a slow morph. Right. And, but once it started, I absolutely got the bug. And I love opera with an absolute passion. And I, I, in an ideal world, I would like to say that I do 50-50 symphonic and operatic right. work. Um, because I think the two help each other so much. Very much so. So my training was was really purely symphonic. Um, with George Hurst and Ilya Mustin was was really only symphony symphonic repertoire, and but because I was a good pianist, I used to get asked to come and play for auditions quite often for mm. singers and for opera companies, and then that led to me doing some repetitor work for, funnily enough, the pianist who I took over from, who used to be George Hurst's uh, pianist, a wonderful musician called Jeremy Silver, who now lives in South Africa. And uh, so I took over. So Jeremy gave me my first job as a repetitor. And then I assisted him. And then I did some work with, uh, 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 what's it called? British Youth Opera, mm. a couple of seasons. So this was my kind of introduction into opera. And while I was at the Academy, we also conducted opera scenes. But I have to say, with all honesty, nobody really oversaw me when I was 
mm. subjecting these singers to my conducting. I mean, and so thankfully it didn't seem to go too badly. But mm. uh, but there was it was a very case of just go in the pit and do it. Yeah. And so I think when I really got the bug was actually thanks to Wasfi Carney, who ran, oh, sorry, well, ran then Grange Park Opera, which was down in Twyford. And she now uh, runs another opera company, which is also called Grange Park Opera, but is 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 near Guildford. But mm. um, so I met Wasfi because I was invited uh, to be assistant conductor on Prokofiev's The Gambler. And that went quite well. And she asked me to go back the second year as chorus master as well as assistant. And then in between, she said, Toby, um, we're doing a, uh, we're doing a uh, West Side Story in in Wandsworth Prison. Oh no, I've got it wrong. We're doing Sweeney Todd right. in in Portsmouth Prison. Yeah. Will I conduct it? And will I be music director? And it wasn't just we were we're doing it in the prison. We were doing it with the prisoners. And brilliant. Uh, this is something called Pimlico Opera. And and I said, oh, but Wasfi, they'll eat me alive. You know, with my <laughs> with my my plummy accent and and all this, <laughs> all this kind of thing. They'll they'll just make. And he said she said and she gave me the best advice ever. She said, Toby, so long as you don't think you're better than them, and you're there to help them, you won't yeah. have any problems. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that bit of advice went straight to my heart. I said, Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. And and she was totally right. I mean, yes, I I got a bit of ribbing for my accent occasionally, but but in but because I could laugh with them. Yeah, and I have no problem with take, making fun of myself. It's uh, um, so that was not a problem. So actually, they they and they also saw that I was there because I genuinely cared about helping them. Uh, and I have to say, the first time hearing a room full of prisoners singing Sweeney Todd was was one of the most goose pimple inducing moments of my entire musical life. Yeah, and then after that, we did um. We did a West Side Story in, in Wandsworth. Um, a number of, I mean, quite a lot of different musicals. I did that for about six years. Yeah. And it totally changed my perception on so many different levels about who I am, how fortunate I am. It made me realise how fortunate I am because there were so many people I encountered in prison who had never been given any encouragement, never been given, never been told that they had talent, that they had potential, that they had the possibility to be something greater yes than themselves by working together with other people mm. and i i mean some some of the talent we uncovered was 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 simply extraordinary and i would say that 90 percent of the people i encountered were there because of drugs right yeah. and so when i was at university i'm sure you think you kind of think oh drugs that's just isn't that just like alcohol and you don't really think it's such a big deal but but actually having having encountered those people in prison who were there because of an addiction or because they were dealing or because they whatever circumstances led them to that dark place in their lives um i realized that that you know that well there's absolutely zero um what's the expression a zero tolerance policy on on drugs yes uh, but also it was it was just the realization that that somebody like me who was given such incredible opportunity by by very generous parents and being sent to schools where music was encouraged and where actually me sitting in a in a room playing the piano for six hours a day wasn't considered weird but actually just yeah. encouraged yeah uh, I was a you know that was just so fortunate and those and so many people don't have that opportunity and that's 
also why it's such a a tragedy that the level of music education in this country is being so destroyed by lack of funding and and it's not only lack of funding it's also the way that 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 the government doesn't seem to think culture really matters. Yeah, it's lack of any sort of encouragement or, or uh, uh, you know, advocacy. Mm. Um, you know, we'll just we'll just let it get on with itself. It seems to have coped so far. You know, yeah. and 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 when we need it, we will we will hold that flag up in the air and go look at how brilliant we are, um, and not um, tell everybody we haven't been funding it for the last you know fifteen twenty years. I know. Or and the trouble yeah. is, we all, we're all so passionate about it that we we make we get on and make it happen anyway. Yes, despite it, exactly. Yeah. And so, they're, oh well, it's all right. They seem to be doing all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Toby, the first time I really encountered you was a group that you set up, and I joined way too late because I had my head in the sand starting this podcast, which was called Conductors in Isolation, which started during the first COVID lockdown and is still going on now. Um, how did the idea come about? I, As I said, I wished I'd known about it from the start. I'd have joined at the beginning and been there every night at six o'clock with your, your meetings online. But how, how, how did the idea come to you? And what do you think, because uh, as I said, it's still going on now and I still get regular little things pop up on my phone saying that somebody's posted. What's the legacy of it? Gosh, legacy. Well, that's that connects to something which I think is one of the, the hardest things about being a conductor, which is the loneliness. Yes. And if there was any time when I felt through good fortune, I could use my, my new position at the Royal College and the profile that gave me to bring together conductors at a moment of worldwide hardship it was the beginning of the pandemic yeah and on the first day of the pandemic i just sent well actually not the first day of the pandemic that's a ridiculous thing to say on the first day of lockdown the first yeah. lockdown in the uk i sent a message on facebook to about 40 conductor friends and i said should we just have a zoom call this evening and just have a little catch up yeah and and they all kind of logged on and we had an amazing conversation i said well look why don't we do this every day yeah. And um, and let's call it Conductors in Isolation. It was just one of those moments that that's the name, Conductors yeah. in Isolation. So I set up a Facebook page, Facebook group, and everyone, every member of those 40 invited their friends and it, it kind of snowballed. Mm. And every day of the week, Monday to Saturday, we had Sundays off. <laughs> uh, Monday to Saturday, we had meetings. And those meetings were generally... Uh, interviews, discussions, theme discussions, yes, um, presentations. Sometimes they were score study, and very often, and more times than not, I would lead the interviews mm. and and give some of the presentations. But there's a limit to how much you can do. And once we were getting mm. on to you know over a year, uh, you start running out of ideas. And what was wonderful was the number of there, and there was a real core of 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 conductors who kind of were there every single session and were just amazing at, at contributing. Mm. And so they would often lead sessions on, uh, for example, there was three days on on uh, Freemasonry and the Magic Flute. <laughs> uh, John Longstaff did a wonderful series of talks about how to approach rehearsing Messiah. Mm. Because most conductors will have to rehearse Handel's Messiah at some point, but uh, they won't, but probably not have had a chance to really discuss all the difficulties among one another. So the real legacy was building up 
a community of conductors knowing that they can talk to one another and ask for advice Mm. And if there's one thing, and I know this is a question you're going to ask me at the end, but I'm going to answer it now. If there's one thing I could change about conducting, it's the fact that we don't talk to each other enough. No. And I think it takes a brave conductor to ask another conductor to to give them advice or feedback. Mm. Uh, but every singer does it, and every singer has a coach. Yes. And uh, every instrumentalist will probably, you know, go to people they ask for technical advice, but somehow because our body language as conductors is so individual and personal, I think we're a little bit less, maybe a little bit more cagey about yeah. asking somebody else whose who's own technique and body language has developed in such a way that it may be different. So you have to choose the people you ask for advice very, very carefully. But um, so the legacy of conductors in isolation is what I feel needs to be changed in the conducting world in general which is that we're not just that lone isolated individual on the podium but actually we're all there to support one another and to and to to learn from one another mm. yeah well i agree with you, you completely i mean it sort of i had the same thought myself which is i, I sat there and thought what are all the other conductors doing and then i had a different light bulb go off and go hey hey hang on a minute this is the first time in history that they're all sitting home doing nothing. I might be able to interview some of them just for, for, you know, for a podcast, for something to do to keep me sane. But actually what's happened is that all of those early interviews and virtually every interview afterwards, after I've pressed stop, the person I've been interviewing says, oh, that was so much fun. It's just great just to talk about what we do with another conductor. And your group was exactly that. I mean, it's still going today. You know, regularly somebody will pop up and say, anybody know where I can get hold of this score? Or what about this particular note in this particular chord? Don't you think that's a misprint? I did a couple of those sessions, as you know. I did one on Shostakovich 9. I did one on, on a rehearsal order for a John Williams concert with the RPO, but also if you had a rehearsal day, you know, nuts and boltsy stuff. Mm. Um, and thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and what was great was in both of those, I had really serious questions as to why I did it my way um, or had I thought about doing it in an, another way or, or you know, compliments or whatever it is. And say, oh, I'd never thought of that. that. Thank you for letting me know that. And it's just being willing to share and be open um, and not just as a teacher, which, you know, you are and I am, but many of the people on that group don't teach other people. But and 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 I'm sh I'm sure like we all do they sit there they sat there feeling isolated feeling alone and now to be able to connect with a, a group of conductors is wonderful I mean there, there's well over a thousand members isn't there on there what one thousand eight hundred wow uh, yeah. um, but the you know the, the dilemma now is what happens next and to be honest that's a question I sh I tried to answer about a year ago and I don't feel I've succeeded in carrying it through and. So I feel that Conductors in Isolation needs to carry on mm. as not just, so it, obviously it remains as a, as a Facebook forum, a Facebook group where people talk to one another and ask questions, but it's all, but what's, and I, we even have the Zoom meetings are still available every Wednesday and Saturday evening. Uh, if, if any conductors want to log on, they can log on and they can talk to one another. It's I, so I organize, I left that mm. kind of in perpetuity, but um, what's, What's not happening is I've just simply not had any time to log on myself. No. And I don't have time to organize the sessions anymore. Um, I think what I need is a couple of, of ambitious young conductors who want to take it over. 
Yes, and a couple and of actually, young Padawans who will take on the job. Exactly, and but I, I need to, but quite genuinely, I think it would be wonderful if if the, it could be an active forum, providing the kind of feedback and advice young conductors, especially, or I should say, early career conductors, especially, uh, need, because there are lots of questions which I I know I was able to answer. Uh, people think of applying to music college trying to decide in what direction their conducting career should go, which, you know, is it going to the opera route? Is it going to music college? Is it going going freestyle? Mm. And um, that was possible to answer with, with a whole wealth of people joining who could give their input, people from the German opera houses, people from different yeah. countries, um, and of course, people from UK conservatoires. So I would love to see that becoming actually slightly more active because what i don't want is it to become to stagnate because we all rejoin the the you know the rat race and or you know going around yes. and around on the wheel and it's so easy to lose lose sight of of what's really important mm. and obviously music's the most important thing of all for for both most of us who are doing a vocational career uh but also the human interaction is so important and and you know we don't all want to be in an ivory tower <laughs> no there is an 11th question which i'm sure you know about which is about score study and preparation and i always ask you know do you sit at your piano or do you use your inner ear or a combination of both big to small you know global view down to the minute details or start at the beginning and work your way through and are you a scribbler inner are you a red blue black and and also in brackets, sub question: Is it something you discuss with your students at the RCM about school studying and marking? Studying, obviously, marking different uh -huh. topic. Uh, it depends. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those questions which is a yes and no. Uh, so I I don't mark very much in my scores, uh, but what I mark has changed over the years. So if I yeah. look back over a score, I was studying when I was at music college, I look at it and it just, just looks like a load of garbage. It just seems so unstructured and, and disorganized. And I think, did I have any idea what this piece was about? Mm. But, you know, I've studied the scores of some other, you know, great, uh, some great conductors. Like I used to study, study Schulte's scores, for example. Yes. And some, some of them, you can hardly see the notes through the, this incredibly frenetic sort of scribbling and, and a thousand metronome marks crossed out and written different ones. I mean, yeah. you know, we're talking about 108 crossed out and replaced with 109, crossed out and replaced with 107. Um, <laughs> so you kind of, you decide, you discover probably more about the conductor Mm. Then you do about about actually the 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 core the heart of the music. Yeah, it's like if you know after I die, I don't think my scores are any use to anybody because mm. it won't tell you anything about my approach to them. It just will be perfectly useful for somebody to use and rub out my markings because I don't think there's anything valuable in them. Right. But the um so anything I write in the score is normally just simply to add uh, to act as a aid memoir. Yeah. But when I glance down, I can see in one glance everything I need to know about that page. So at the moment, I tend to, I'm trying to think where, where to start this discussion from. I think at the moment, I I start by reading through the whole score very, very fast. Mm. Get an overview. Um, in fact, and this is, this is something I got from the Adrian Bolt book, you know, back mm. when I was a schoolboy. Yeah, he's, like, he's saying sort of you know read through it really fast so you have a view like like an eagle flying over the over the music and over the landscape and then I gradually go slower and slower 
but the next thing I do is actually I mark in bar lengths. Yeah. Sorry, phrase lengths. Phrase lengths. Yeah. Now I know that's a bit dangerous because I don't like the idea of cutting up something which is a very organic form into something which is bricky. Yes. Uh, but I do find it helps me to identify the ar architecture of the music. And it's very helpful for me to know when a composer deviates from, if you accept that the composer normally writes in four bar phrases, that when they add a, fi a five bar phrase or a seven bar phrase, that it's interesting. Yes. And, it, and, it, and that there's a reason why. So the thing I'm looking for most when I study a score is to ask the question, why did he write this? Or why does she write this? And asking, the, asking myself the right questions which will enable me to find my answers for what the composer was intending. Mm. And the more I study the score, the easier it becomes to find the right questions to ask. Yes. And that doesn't mean necessarily finding the right answers. No, no, no. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, because every question you ask, I'll find at least five answers. And that's when recordings then become very useful. Yeah. And uh, I have no shame at all about about listening to recordings. I know some conductors say, "Oh, I don't listen to recordings." I think it's absolute nonsense. Honest, honestly, not I, many on here have, have have said that. A couple only. Uh, I have had one conductor say, "If anybody tells you they don't listen to recordings, they're liars." He wasn't saying that they might be lying. He just went straight down the line and said, "They're liars." You know, um, I, I'm with you. I mean, you'd be stupid not to inform yourself with what the greats of the past have done in their recordings and often they recorded it two or three times and as simon rattle says they, they're postcards from your life you know that views may change over the years but you know it's it, you'd be stupid not to exactly and uh, i mean who doesn't want to get a free lesson from a yeah, great conductor exactly yeah uh, it's wonderful but the trouble is that they normally fi find a different solution to one of the five you might have been thinking of. <laughs> yeah. so, so it actually poses even more questions that you might not have thought about so i find that when i'm studying a score there's a period about halfway through, where I am absolutely buried in confusion, mm. in not knowing what my decisions are going to be, because I'm just aware. And that's where I kind of want to scream, help, I need conductors in isolation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Or I need I need, I need, need a conductor friend who I can I can yeah. say, can I talk this through with you? Yeah. And uh, and then it gets starts getting easier, because, okay, I, I really, this is what my instincts are telling me is, is what Brahms means here. And and once you know, once you've started building what it is you believe in, then the, the other parts start falling into place. And then I start reading the score through faster and getting, you know, more of a sense of the flow and and the and the the uh, the ebb and flow and the and the overall direction of the music. Mm. Um I'm quite obsessed by harmony. So I will I will analyze the harmony quite in a quite a detailed way. And that's also partly because I think harmony is something which wasn't spoken about to me enough when I was a student. Me too. Uh, and and I now think that harmony is the most important thing. I think it's the most interesting thing. It's a lot more interesting than melody because mm. a melody on its own without the right harmony is meaningless. Yeah, absolutely. A melody can be something completely different with a different set of harmony underneath it. Uh, that's exactly. the whole point. Yeah. And that's and that's why Mozart is my favorite composer uh, because because he somehow in this in this godlike way manages to connect to us as human beings but also express all so many aspects of what it is to be alive mm. in all its in all of its difficulties and and joys yeah. uh by by just it could be one note one viola note which 
just inflects something and i don't know it can just just give a a moment of feeling a feeling of decay or of or of anguish or a bittersweetness or or in something sad it can be a moment which actually makes you feel that there's consolation and there's hope you know and mm. i i find mozart's humanity all the more miraculous from the fact that he's writing within such a cl mostly classical harmonic language are you a young conductor thirsty for knowledge and wanting to discover more about the world of conducting then my patreon page is there for you I'm constantly posting new content there based on my experiences as a conductor and an ex-orchestral player. And I offer you the chance to ask me any question, any time of the day. For instance, you might like to ask me how to mark up a score, as we've just been discussing. When you subscribe, you'll gain access to interviews, video posts, tour diaries, articles and much more. If you pay for the whole year, then you will gain a 10% discount. And if you are a student, contact me directly and there will be a further discount. All of this can be found at patreon.com forward slash Mike on the Podium. And from just £5 a month, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Toby Purser. Toby, it's time for the 10 questions. And as you know, I always start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I've been dreading these 10 questions. I knew they were, <laughs> I knew they were coming. Uh, it's so hard because there are so many sounds I love and so many sounds I hate. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was thinking, you know what? The sound I love most is the sound of a blackbird because mm. it's, it's something I, I only grew to love quite recently. And somebody pointed out, she said, can you hear the blackbird up there? And and, and I, I didn't realize that this was the song of the blackbird. Yeah. And then I realized that this beautiful bird goes, flies to the highest point it can find and sings its heart out. And I just love the fact that it's not just that it's singing its heart out. It's just so beautiful. So yeah. when I hear a blackbird, I smile inwardly and outwardly. Brilliant answer. And a sound you hate or, di or dislike intensely. This was even harder than finding something I like, actually, uh, because I was thinking, oh, all the all the long things. I, you know, I hate background music. I hate the sound of of metal against metal. You mm. know, like when you're when you're and you're waiting for the underground and the train scrapes in. Um, but I thought I thought no, on an emotional level, the thing I which pains me the most is the sound of somebody crying, mm. and it's not the sound itself. It's the fact that somebody is in deep pain. And you're not able to help them. Yes. And you might be able to offer them consolation. But even then, are you allowed to? Is that the right thing to do? Yeah. So there's, there's there's this huge inward uncertainty. What's the right thing to do? And also, even if you offer someone consolation, you know that you can't solve anything. Mm. And with all the other nasty sounds, you can ask somebody to turn off the music. You can ask, you can stop the clock, which is ticking away and disrupting your inner pulse when you're studying a score. That's another sound I hate, by the way. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I would say the sound of somebody crying. It's a very, very good answer. And one I'm sure I haven't had before with quite such excellently thought through processes attached to it as well, which I completely agree with. Number three is if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I feel that one of the things which has suffered most in my life as a conductor is my friendships. Hmm. So what I would do, and I love cooking, by the way. So what I would do is I would spend 24 hours 
of which at least the first six would be going shopping <laughs> and buying the most amazing food. And I would spend the afternoon cooking. And then I would invite my the people I love most to come and spend the rest of the 24 hours together. Brilliant. And what and the reason why I say brilliant is because I know now the answer to question 10 is going to be interesting and well thought through. <laughs> I, <laughs> don't always, <laughs> I don't always know that, but actually a very dear friend of mine um, who shall remain anonymous, um, very dear friend of mine who's, who's a presenter and a classical um, and a percussionist in the music business in the UK. He's, uh, he lis he's listened to every episode and he says that the uh, he always tries to work out through questions one to nine whether question 10 is going to be interesting or not because he's a foodie like me. So, yeah, he, he's probably going to get a tip off that your question 10 answer is going to be good. He's going to be very disappointed. Well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, question four is, can you name your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Well, it's too obvious to say Carlos Kleiber and, and Claudio Abado, I think, because they're almost... Well, th those those two are my kind of gods. Yeah. I, I think they're just in another league. Uh, and there are so many great conductors and yes. it's impossible to put myself to one. I'm going to, I want to stick up for, I think one, a great underrated conductor who is Rudolf Kemper. Oh, now there's a name who's barely appeared, if ever appeared. And I agree with you. Absolutely agree with you. And the reason I, the part of the reason is because he's a con conductor whose performances I'm, I'm gradually listening to more and more at the moment. And Every musician I've ever spoken to who ever played under him always says, oh, well, we love playing under so-and-so. We love, but oh, Kemper. Yeah. Kemper was the one. We yeah. loved Kemper. And it was just such admiration and respect and love. And he has the qualities which I most look for in a conductor, which are truthfulness and integrity. Question five, as you know, can be considered a more tricky question. Other people don't think it's tricky at all. Can you name your favourite current conductor or conductors? Well, it's hard to say favourite. Herbert Blomstedt yes. is a conductor who I've never seen conduct live. And I'm absolutely determined to see him conduct before his 100th birthday. <laughs> so that that is he is there with somebody I, I admire beyond words yeah. and I adore even without having seen him live. So that's something I need to remedy. But I decided to actually pick for the conductor I most admire, Mark Wigglesworth. Yes. Because Mark is somebody whose integrity and honesty, I I think, go beyond... Well, put it this way. It's what I would aspire to be myself. Mm. And mm. I've assisted Mark on a number of occasions. And... His, he has similarities in his background to me, uh, including having studied with George Hurst. And so the, the process he went through in order to free himself and, and become the conductor he is, is something I relate to very much. Mm. Uh, and also, he's a great thinker. He, he, his book is, is superb. His articles are, are always so insightful and, and genuine and engaging. So as an all-round musician and a conductor who I love assisting, because when you're assisting Mark, you're made to feel as an equal to him. It's extraordinary. Yeah. He really generally wants to know your feedback. And when you give it to him, he will conduct differently in the concert. Yeah. And yeah. You'll, you'll hear that your, your, your suggestions have been integ integrated into a concert. And it's an incredible honour when you realise that you've been a part of a conductor's final performance.
So as as a conductor, I admire in so many different ways. I would nominate Mark Wigglesworth. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? I have to say Lulu by Alban Berg. It's uh, and funnily enough, I assisted Mark Wigglesworth on it. Yeah. And um, yes, and um, the reason I find it the hardest piece I ever conducted, and I have to be honest, I didn't I didn't conduct a performance, but right. I conducted um, I conducted a, a studio run, and it was assisting at English National Opera, and I think it was the hardest piece I've ever conducted because I hated it when I started learning it. <laughs> and I thought I'm never going to be able to grow to love this piece. And but by the end, boy, did I love it. And it but it took me such a lot of effort to find my way into it. Yeah. To find myself into, into that sound world, but also massive structures. I mean, every bar had a different kind of technical challenge. But, uh, you know, you have this amazing musical palindrome. Mm. Which uh, Mark used to get me. I, this is this was something I, I really enjoyed. Before every performance, he used to ask me to go through the whole of the palindrome with the singers. Um, so I got to conduct that bit about about <laughs> I don't know how many times, at least a dozen times. Yeah. And uh, and it's amazing because you start so slowly, and you get gradually faster and faster. About eight minutes a cello round or something like that, and then you gradually get slower. It's much harder slowing down than accelerating. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that the accelerating, you can somehow that just has a natural momentum, but with the slowing down, it's very easy not to slow. It's quite difficult not to slow down too quickly. Yes, it's a very interesting process. But yes, I think Abenberg was that was one of the most challenging pieces for me to work. Partly because I had to grow to love it. Number seven is when traveling abroad to conduct. What item could you not leave home without? My gym kit. <laughs> that's um no that that's um that that is not the answer i would have given two years ago no right okay uh, um or pre-covid yeah and um so the answer i actually was going to give you was a book yeah. because you know you spend so much time uh, not, you know, a good novel because you spend yeah. so much time uh on your own in a rehearsal yeah. room after and you need something to occupy yourself or else it's just really lonely and i thought well uh, you know and i always need a, i need a novel to read uh but then i thought well god it's it's so isolating to be you know, stuck in your hotel room reading a book. So the other thing I do, so I've taken up rowing and I love it. I oh. absolutely love it. And it's uh, there are so many similarities with rowing and conducting. And normally, so they've worked out in my rowing club uh, that I've got good rhythm. Right. So they normally put me in stroke, which is, yeah. the, which is the row who sits in front of the other rowers. Yes. And uh, so I set the rhythm set the that pace. They, everyone else yeah. has to follow, set the pace. Yeah. Uh, and there are so many similarities with with conducting because you have to be feeling the whole boat. You have to be aware of whether they're in synchronization with you. The difference is you're not allowed to adapt. So with um, so with conducting, you're always accommodating individuality. Yes. And, and encouraging absolutely. In, absolutely encouraging that and the flexibility with the rowing. You have to be you have to show very strong leadership. Uh, but actually you don't deviate from that rhythm. They absolutely have. And there have been plenty of conductors who have been like that. I mean, you know, I, I remember seeing a performance nearly fall apart conducted by Colin Davis, uh, who was a very flexible conductor. Mm. But there was one point when he said, basically, you can fall apart if you want to. This is my tempo. I'm carrying <laughs> yeah. it on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, rowing is, is, but it's also so much about, about 
responsibility. Uh, you have to take responsibility. You cannot flag because mm. if you don't put in 100% effort and remain focused at every moment, you will screw up. Yeah. And you'll not screw it up yourself. You screw it up for everybody. Everybody behind you, yeah. And yeah. everyone behind you. And that's yeah. just like conducting, basically. So yeah. I love the fact that there are similarities. But also, when I'm rowing, it takes me away from music. It takes me away from the stress and thinking about music. Because you can, if you don't think about that one thing in a kind of trance, mm. it's very meditative, then you'll make a mistake. So I like the fact that, I, that it gives me a real escape from, from everyday life. I've had gym kit or gym clothes or running shoes, but I'm not sure I've had a rower. Um, <laughs> I've got a rowing machine in my study right here, but I've got uh, dodgy knees at the moment, so I'm not getting on it. But it was also something I did during lockdown to try and lose a bit of weight, which, you know, partially succeeded. Um, but, yeah, I can see the fascination in it, and I, I enjoy your analogies with conducting very much. As somebody who's into their sport, I understand what you're talking about. <laughs> Number eight... Has been answered earlier on in the in the um, in the podcast. Um, so we're going to jump to number nine, which is what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I'd love to be a psychologist because, well, actually, when I was at, when I was at school, you know, you have that moment when you have to decide what you're going to do at university. Yes, uh, and yeah. um, I was very interested in psychology, and I think psychology is such a big it's probably 90 percent of what conductors do anyway yeah 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 because yeah. uh, it it involves a lot of empathy and it also has a huge amount of responsibility attached to it and so if i lost the use of my limbs <laughs> um or decided that music wasn't for me anymore um yeah i would love to be a psychologist very good answer and i agree again it's it is so much of what we do so much of what we do when we're doing it the problem is that a ninety percent of what we do is actually a lot of the time is spent sitting on our own in a room looking at a, a score with our pencils in our hand. But yeah, when we're actually doing it, ninety percent of what we do is psychology. Exactly, um, absolutely agree. As I said earlier, when you gave me your answer to question number three, I was looking forward to question number ten. So here it is: If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well. Despite the fact that I said that I would spend most of a day cooking and, <laughs> and, and shopping, the reality is I actually what I love most of all is really wonderful ingredients cooked simply. Yes. Uh, so I love Italian cooking, for example, because of that focus on fresh produce and cooked so that the natural flavors absolutely sing. Mm. Uh, so my final meal would be um, some oysters. Yeah. Lovely. Uh, some locally grown asparagus. Oh. Uh, perhaps a Dover sole. And I, but seafood is my favourite, by the way. Yeah. I, yeah. So, so, <laughs> That's I, coming through. <laughs> do, do, Dover sole. Yeah. I guess hey, yeah. I do need some, something else in here somewhere, but Dover yeah. sole or turbot, something like that. Uh, and actually, my favourite pudding is quite, I just, I was thinking, what would I most like? My final, final thing I ever eat? Strawberries. Yeah. Cream it has to be with cream. Has yes. to be with cream. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes. And with all of that seafood, are we going for a crisp white wine, or uh, or are we having different different drinks with different courses? You know, I hadn't thought through the wine list, um, but I would definitely. So I would def with with the Dobersol, I would go for a, a lovely white Burgundy. Mm. Um, but that wouldn't work with the asparagus. With the asparagus, ah, uh, maybe maybe an Austrian. Gewurztraminer or something. Um, 
I love Austrian wines, by the way. That's something I've discovered from working a lot in Vienna. It's yeah. I think I think Austrian wines are the, some of the greatest wines in the world. They're absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Uh, and with the oysters, maybe just a glass of beautiful champagne. Yeah. Well, all of those work. <laughs> they all work wonderfully well. Um, yeah, I'm a lover of seafood, and that 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 would do me as well. It's a very very nice menu. <laughs> Toby, it's been a joy, as I knew it would be. Uh, through the few times we've chatted or, or interacted on conductors in isolation, long may that continue. Um, long may uh, you know teaching at the at the Royal College um, be a success that it is, and I hope very soon that we can actually meet live over a glass of something and carry on chatting very soon thank you definitely mike it's been such fun to speak and uh, yeah please come and visit me at the royal college very soon a mic on the podium was devised and produced by michael seal with music by ben dawson next time i chat with a danish conductor who started out as a professional percussionist but from the age of 27 onwards he concentrated on becoming a conductor He's held title positions in Norway and the United Kingdom, including in Glasgow, where he is currently music director of the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. And earlier this year, he started as music director of the Minnesota Orchestra in the United States. But until then, bye-bye.